0: I see a mistake being made by entrepreneurs quite often. And that mistake is that they're not focusing in on the problems of their clients or their prospects. So some of the things that I have learned over the years are ways to be able to uncover what those problems might be. And essentially, that's just about having a conversation, asking deeper questions from your prospects and your clients, right? So I've got a list of some of those questions that we like to incorporate into conversations to be able to get to those core root problems, to be able to understand how we can help, how can what we've learned or our products or services, how can they help them make their lives better, right? So some of those questions or some of those things that you can do to be able to extract and find that value is something like asking things like, got it, how's that going so far? And then obviously the person would respond with further clarification. You're diving deeper into whatever the problem or their situation is. Another one is, I see, how did that end up happening? So again, diving in and learning more about them. Did you expect it to turn out that way? What seems, what seems to be the challenge or struggle with blank, right? So again, whatever it is that they are focusing in on, you wanna learn what the challenge and struggle is. Another one is, what did you mean when you said, and then you insert whatever the vague paint point was that they had i told you Uh, so where exactly are you stuck with that right now again diving in deeper learning more about them what do you think causes all of this so is this an x problem or a y problem so those are some frameworks and some things that you should be incorporating into your conversations with your prospects and your current clients to be able to learn how your products and services can help benefit them the most If you are an accredited business owner looking to grow your net worth by investing in real estate, head over to investinsquarefeet.com and check out what we're up to. We are starting to see some real deals popping up in the market because of where we are in the market cycle. So if you are interested in growing your net worth, go ahead and check us out, investinsquarefeet.com. Today we are going to be chatting with a old industry veteran here and actually he's not that old at all but his name is Matt Owens, Matthew Owens, and we are going to be learning many things today but one of the most important things is how to quickly determine whether or not you should do a deal or you should not do a deal. Matt goes into explaining with us how he goes about determining if this is an opportunity that they should learn more about or if it's something that they should pass on. So with that, let's go ahead and dive
1: right into the show. It was eight grand each, and they're teaching you about seller financing, debt, multifamily, single family, lending, all IRA investing, and just touched on the topics on a class on each one and tax and legal side, which I actually learned way more on tax and legal than I did at my CPA firm because I was like being taught by entrepreneurs that were more exciting. And and so it, I felt like that was valid for me personally because I think that added value, but there was t- so many more scams. Now, if you're talking about the masterminds that like we're part of in different ways, You take your skill sets. Once you have that base skill set, you've done some activities. Maybe you don't start masterminds right away, but you develop those skills and those resources you need. Then you join the masterminds. My God, like the level of value you get out of meeting other people that are on a higher level that are willing to pay a good chunk of money for a mastermind, I think is key because you're talking about people with volume. Like I just got back from New Orleans uh, as you did and at a mastermind and the number of relationships and opportunities just came out of that alone, paid for it immediately. Just from, I already see 15 income methods, just from going to one weekend event with the right like-minded people that are all there to help people and stuff. But yeah, man, that I for sure agree with you hundred percent though. It depends on the what it is but there's so many scams and low quality crap that you can get involved with versus the higher quality you really got to do your homework on which ones
0: yeah and i'm sure that's part of the whole learning experience too right you got to start out with those cheaper, lesser things that don't really teach you all that terribly much and just trying to get you indoctrinated into their funnel. But
1: uh, Right. And upsold yeah. on 15 more yeah. items and stuff exactly. like that. Yeah. And is this really real? Any, anytime someone tells you, oh, this is easy. I'm going to get you X amount of leads and you're going to kill it on this. Yeah, there's some marketing gimmick, but they better be telling you how damn hard that is too and how much you're going to yeah. get a punch in the face and all, all of the, hey, this isn't easy. This is going to be like if if you're teaching wholesaling, you can't just, oh, dude, go do volume right away. Go do, how many systems you have to have for marketing, yeah. for acquisition, you got to be able to close on it. The sale inside, it's a grind to do that and it takes years to develop a really quality system and team, just like any running any business, you can get lost in that process and have to spend way more time. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. You jumped in to real estate.
0: What were the types of things that you felt was was worth your time back then? What did you jump into uh, initially? Was it single family? Was it something else? What, What did that look like for you?
1: Yeah, I I know what you're getting at already. But yes, it was single family. And I actually started off with single family properties in Tennessee. It wasn't even like California where I live. It was Tennessee, which is even lower price point properties, primarily out of fear, but also really driven by cash flow and wanting to get cash flow stream assets and focused on markets where there was a higher rent to price ratio versus California that doesn't really cash flow, right? That's was my primary mentality. So we did a bunch of research on different markets around the country, but it was a single family home, fix and flip and buy and hold strategy, uh, which I still buy some because they fall on my lap, but I don't think I'll ever buy them again. I've now flipped a little bit over a thousand houses now. Uh, we also have about 35 million lint out to different flippers in different markets around the country and raise capital and do a lot of value add stuff. But the Fix and flip side was where I started, where my bang for the buck was. And I'm making ten to $30,000 a house, but doing five of those to 10 of those a month consistently for a long period of time, getting brain damage nonstop along the way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's what I thought was valuable back then. Uh, I think a little differently now about my time.
0: <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So you, I, I'm curious how you jumped right into... Essentially remote management more or less back what year was this? I'm sure it was before Zooms and all of that, right? I, I quit so. my CPA
1: firm job in two thousand six to go into real estate. So I literally did great for about a year and a half and then didn't do great and realized yeah. I sucked at everything. So when yeah. the market it's, crashed.
0: Yeah, talk a little bit about some of those things. Like how did you manage that back then remotely doing that those large of or that large of projects before we had phones and computers and zoom and meetings and all of that stuff. That's that, that would be crazy. We didn't have, we didn't didn't have Google.
1: We didn't have Google maps then for sure. So like,
0: could you text text pictures even back and forth then?
1: Maybe I don't, I don't remember if that, that was a while. I I think so, but it was uh, maybe not. Yeah. I don't think so. Really at first it's a matter of your team, right. And then getting consistent documentation, but really at at the same time you get stolen from a lot right you learn how to not get stolen from with the proper processes and checks and balances from your team and people outside your team to do that and it takes A hell of a long time sometimes because you don't realize all the ways you lose money until you've done it for a while. And you're like, I lost money here. I lost money here and here. God, that was stupid. Mm -hmm. But then there was, it was a little bit easier too, where it was very much relationship based for finding deals and everything as well. We were literally out there with maps, driving neighborhoods with the maps, outlining these maps consistently and learning it, getting driving through the wrong neighborhoods on the wrong weekend, seeing crackheads all over the place or like getting screamed at by people and being like, oh, crap, we should not be in this neighborhood right now. This is not a good (laughs) place. So you just... It's trial and tribulation. And then we went through probably five management companies in the beginning before we found the right ones. And we even started our own management company and fired ourselves because it's such a hard business and Mm -hmm. sold that off and actually have an outside manager now that manages our stuff that runs like 5,000 units. And they just have a way better system. They cut our costs down massively. And I'm like, great. I don't want all the management problems. But, yeah, Yeah. it, it was a hard thing in the very beginning. Doing this, we're flying to the market consistently, like every single month. We're going out there and calling our agents nonstop on the phones. What do you think about this? Can you get me a list? Send me pictures. It was not easy for sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. And it's amazing. That wasn't even that long ago. And yeah, I can't imagine doing that anymore without all the tools that we use today. Yeah, You mentioned that you've gotten a lot smarter now. You've learned some of the things you've learned what to look for, and the types of opportunities that you're interested in. Now, talk a little bit about, I guess, that path of getting to where you are today and learning this is what we want to invest our time in. This is where we want to spend more of our resources. And talk a little bit about that transition and where you ended up.
1: Before. Absolutely. We started off fixing and flipping and then doing that consistently, going, okay, we're making 10 to 30 grand a house. But they were cookie cutter buy them, renovate them, tenant them. So we're not bleeding and immediately resell them to other investors that want the cash flow, people's IRAs and 401ks or joint venture and hold them ourselves for cash flow. But it's a lot of grind and a lot of work. And in order to have volume, you need to have really good systems. But I don't know that in the beginning, I was that experienced to have the uh, understanding of what a good system needs to look like and that processes and procedures, which you dial in over a period of time, right? It takes Mm -hmm. that learning to to do that unless you just hire the right people immediately that already have that skill set, which is another skill set to do (laughs) on top of it. It started there. And then I started buying some duplexes and fourplexes and realized, hey, wow, I bought a duplex two duplexes and a fourplexes for 140 grand. And I went and put 50 into them each and ended up making like a $250,000 profit instead of a 10 to $30,000 profit on each one of those types of deals. And I was like, oh man, I need to go do bigger deals and realizing, Hey, that wasn't that much different than all these stupid single family homes. They just are more work, right? I need to build in more interest costs for a longer period of time if things go wrong. And so those types of things to start to transition up to the bigger stuff, more bang for your buck as far as the money goes. And then I started doing larger multifamilies, like 30 units and 50 units and things like that. My first one was actually like a 12 unit that I underestimated my rehab on. Massively, because it was like in Memphis and it was like built in 1917. And of course, I'm like, Oh, I think the plumbing might be okay, stuff like that. <laughs> like, wow, that's a big job doing plumbing. And of course, it's falling apart in your hands underneath the house. But all the other piping inside was done already. So, of course, I thought it was perfect. But ended up losing 60 grand on that deal and telling my wife, Put your hand on my chest. I can't breathe. I just lost a salary right now. Back then, a salary was 60 grand. Now it's not. And realizing the next day, like going, okay, I just had a hard hit that day. Let me just focus. How can I make this money back and get this money back immediately? And I ended up getting another deal under contract and wholesaling it to another 1031 exchange investor and making 70 grand in about three weeks to get all that money back. And at that point, I realized it's these trials and tribulations you go through are very much about mindset and how you can shift your mind into focusing on the solution and making more money instead of, and how to not do that again and what mistakes Mm -hmm. you learned, but more focusing on how do you make that money back and how do you move that forward? And it just is a mindset shift that occurs that, enables you to do that actually. So then it, then that mindset shift had me start to develop more resources over time and be able to constantly get out there and push and, and basically solve problems as they came up. And so through networking, I started developing more and more capital relationships. And then I had other people that needed money for their deals and I had all mine full. And so I started lending money now to a, a, like individual friends and people that I knew that were good bets and I've known them for years type of thing, not that's a good gauge of their ability to repay, it's not. But doing homework on them of course and learning the due diligence process, learning foreclosure issues with lending and stuff like that. And I realized that interest rate arbitrage is on lending is much more passive than fix and flip or doing multifamily active deals. And I was like, oh, this is a major mental shift Holy crap, Like this is what I want to do. How do I go make this? And now we got $35 lent out. We're making a good spread on that money. We're doing a lot of work for that as well. But dialing in all the processes and systems that go with that so that I don't have to be the one doing all the workload with that active business of lending, right? Then I started looking at larger multifamilies and bigger deals that other operators were investing with my cash as a limited partner and then going, wait a minute, this is amazing. I can go work with these bigger operators and bring them resources, whether that's capital, underwriting ability, deal analysis, all the financial modeling, all the management capabilities I have, and add those resources to these bigger teams. And I don't have to do any of the management work and the direct ground operations work. That to me is like, oh my God, I can spend time with my kids. I can go and coach basketball. I can go and wrestle with my daughter, even though she beats me up all the time. Like All these things are benefits of a higher level saying my time is 10 times more valuable than money. And when you can find ways of structuring your business to where your time is not needed, there's an unlimited amount of money that you can make. And so it's like, honestly one of the biggest switches that you have to think about when you're running your business, because hiring the right CEOs and COOs and the right teams, it's a hard emotional thing to take on because you're like, oh my God, I got to pay them. What? But if you have your time free, you can make the most money out there because you are the visionary involved that's guiding the whole business, but makes sense. So there's my journey. it does.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that story. And there's a couple of parts that that kind of stick out to me, but I want to dive in a little bit deeper to the whole mindset shift side of things. Yeah. Let's put some context behind this. And I'm sure you've probably been in a situation similar to this where things aren't working out right. You don't know. You you said like you lost $60,000. Maybe that was a lot of money to you. Maybe it wasn't. Still doesn't feel good whether it was or wasn't either way. but making that leap or making that step to realizing I need to bring on additional help, even though you feel like you can't necessarily afford that help or you can't, you can't Hmm. do that. Yes. Your time is going to be free, but then I guess just getting over the fact that you now have this other responsibility, burden, cash outlay that has to be made. How do you know that you are spending your time in the most effective way to make sure that you are going to be able to support that person and also make sure that they are doing the right types of things to be able to support themselves. Like, yeah, is that, I, does that make very, sense?
1: Yeah, very, it's a very hard thing to overcome because, and without clarity on that, on what exact items are you going to do to make more money? How much money are they going to make for you? And even outlining it on paper with a, a financial model and a processes to actually follow within that model, like what things need to be done to make this successful and wh- where's the income going to come from? And what's the goal for everybody involved? Without outlining that, you don't have enough clarity to get over that emotional hurdle. And then you end up in a situation where you're like, oh my God, this is painful. I'm paying this person. It's coming out of my pocket. It's a weight on my shoulders. And yeah, every entrepreneur, everybody in the beginning thinks this and feels that way. But when you have that mindset shift into realizing, no, this person that I'm paying hundred and fifty grand a year to or a big salary to or whatever that number is or that over- bur- that burden, how much more money are they actually making you as part of this system? How much is this entire system paying you and how much is the weight of that system in comparison? And obviously, you want to be very understanding of how much profit you're actually making so that you're not on thin margins in there, that would be stressful, but of course, and and systematizing as much as you can with that system. But once you see that clarity about what the business model should be like, write it out. I develop financial models because I'm like, if I had the worst thing possible and I had $9 million of more expenses than I think I'm going to have, 9 million is not the right number, but you get my (laughs) point. Then, then, how much do I have to make? What is the volume of this thing have to produce? How am I going to bring that business in? What's the operational cost and the time involved? How do I make it from the start where I don't have any time? And then then of course, can you cut that back too? Can you partner with someone? There's a lot of people that don't need a salary that are the right people that want this dream for themselves and want to partner with you. And you can bring in those skill sets and not have that big salary if you're able to structure it the right way and everybody has their needs met in the business. You just give them a piece of that business first before profitability gets split so that it's part of that business in a whole. But these are some of the tools that I've used and I still have a hard time with it emotionally. Everybody does, right? You're like, I can't spend this money right now. There's too much stress already in my head. Yeah.
0: Talk a little bit about your, I feel like this is something that gets glazed over a lot, like the processes and procedures, right? Everyone talks about You got to establish SOPs, standard operating procedures, and the systems and all of that. What does that mean to you? What does that look like in your mind when you're thinking about creating these processes? Is this systems like tools, softwares? Is this written documents? How does that look? What What does that mean to you?
1: so there's a difference between outlining that and then a and then actually implementing as well as how you're going to document it going forward to implement it into your system one of the first things that you're outlining is you got to have a brain dump right you have to be able to go through and say okay what are the different departments of my business That I need to have. Is it accounting, marketing, sales, operations? What pieces of that operation structure, those major components? If it's lending, it's underwriting new deals, it's servicing, it's payoffs, it's handling issues that come up, right? So there's different pieces of that. And then saying, what are the main things inside each one of those primary categories that I can think of that need to be done on a consistent monthly basis? What do I have to track within that department to be efficient? What are the main pieces that go into that? And just getting a general outline of this gives you massive clarity. Yeah, you might need to dial in each one of those figures and document step-by-step procedures, but you can say, okay, I have this one accounting function, make certain, let me have my accounting person like literally document every step of their job so that can actually be done. Now that can be a hard thing to ask someone to do that. And so taking baby steps and saying, hey, I want you to document just this – reoccurring transaction that keeps occurring consistently and what's that process to get this booked into the system because at some point you may be able to get a virtual assistant to do that bookkeeping uh, piece it's a complex transaction if you have the right documentation that saves you a bunch of money long term being able to document this generally at first then take it to your team to dial in on each one of those items over a period of time you're not going to say here's your entire job document everything in a week right that's like really mind-numbingly overwhelm at that point. Nobody's going to take to that. But if you say, we're going to do this over a process of three months and you're going to go through and do one thing this week, you're going to document this piece. And as they get going, you can ramp it up a little bit, but starting off with that process. And then it's a matter of documenting that process in your procedures. If you're using Asana or Trello or monday.com is what we use. And to be able to say, here's our processes and tracking list and reminders list for our team of what things need to be done as far as reoccurring tasks on a department by department basis and it's hard we still don't have it dialed in you always have to go back quarterly and do this it's not as dialed in as i want it we have you know 99 of it in place or 90 percent of it in place but at the same time being able to consistently go back to that over and over again every quarter. Let me review these processes and procedures or at least every six months because so much changes in real estate. You really should be reviewing this and saying, hey, do I, is this causing too much of a headache? Should I get rid of this item? Can I automate this item? Can I outsource this item in each department of your business so that you can cut costs? You can see if it's even needed. Are you spending too much time on activities that are not cost, are not making you enough money compared to these other activities that are killing it for you, which is some of the biggest shift that I had in real estate going from single family to larger projects now in the multifamily and mobile home park space. So these are all the things that I think about when I'm documenting this, but there's no set standard way to do this process. It's Documentation. You can buy tools, and there's some great stuff out there. There's a, a site called Sweet Processes that you can go through and and document all your processes and get them re-updated consistently. But it can it can be very tedious just to do that alone. But yeah, yeah. makes sense. But
0: it, so yeah, no, and it makes makes perfect sense too. Also, from uh, like even a transition or a turnover standpoint, if somebody leaves. What the hell, what did they do? What was their day-to-day task? Now the next person can come in and oh, yeah. get up to speed really quickly. One of the just for the listeners too, one of the things that we learned years ago when we we're creating these things is you want anyone with a reasonable amount of skill set in that industry to be able to, you know, pick it up and move forward with it. So that doesn't mean that Someone should be able to pick it up and start doing computer programming, but they should be able to pick it up and do, if they're an accountant, they should be able to pick it up and do the accounting work, right? That's one of the things that we made a mistake on early on, thinking that it's a lot of training that we're going to be able to where we we thought we could take this and then, oh, this other person can go and do this, but it doesn't necessarily work that way. They still need to have that baseline skill set. Yeah. That's Um, super important
1: from a processes and procedures standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So talk a little bit about the, some of the things that you're most excited about right now coming in the industry. I know we just got back from this event in New Orleans and there's a lot of new information and a lot of connections there. I'm just curious what's in, in Matthew's mind, what's the, what's the, the most important things or the things that are the, the most exciting right now?
1: So from my perspective, I think from my business perspective, I'm doing everything I can to outsource my time and or get buy my time back and, and do less activity. I'm deleveraging, right? And I think a lot of people should deleverage at this time. Maybe they want to keep some leverage for inflationary benefits, of course, but being able to have a heavy cash flow position that can handle a lot of volatility in this kind of a market. We're, we're, we're seeing a lot of Changes happening, right? Interest rates rising. We're seeing war potentially happening. We're seeing inflation occur. We're seeing banking problems and banking failures. There's a lot of potential black swan events out there right now. And I think it's important to get on a defensive, including getting food and water. I'm a prepper. So, you know, those types of things. Uh, But at the end of the day, having your financial life in order, but also having to me more free time to be able to stick and move when things happen. I don't want to be a slow, steady ship that has to move. I want to be able to make moves quick when things happen and free up time to be able to do that. A lot of people don't talk about that when they're talking about repositioning for a, a change in the market or opportunity that may come because if I'm too busy, I can't take advantage of opportunity out here, right? So it's no. costing a lot of money if you don't have your time. And so I'm doing that. I'm going through and keeping more cash reserves on hand, I'm actually investing in different asset classes also. And I'll talk about my thoughts about real estate as a whole, but I'm repositioning into, I have some gold and silver. I have some different mining stocks. I have a lot of real estate or I'm repositioning a lot of my portfolio into an all cash portfolio so that I have an all, no issues there where we can buy discount our properties in a fund into the future as well that way we have the opportunity to go pick up more assets and a reposition to take advantage of opportunity if it comes right i also see some issues in the market with regard to the commercial lending market of course a lot of potential multi-families are going to be in distress over the next two years if they can't get refinanced we'll see what happens with the workouts on these banks a lot of them don't want these properties back so i've assumed they're willing to work things out as much as possible because they don't want to be taking non-performing commercial paper that would destroy them. And a lot of the yeah. smaller banks are the ones that took on a lot of that paper on these short-term bridge type loans that are all coming due in the next two years to the tune of billions and billions of dollars with the commercial loans. It's crazy. And, and there is some risk out there, but that just means opportunity. Whenever there's distress... There's opportunity. We've already seen an adjustment in pricing and we're seeing some sellers now start to realize, hey, wait, I can't get that price just because rates are higher on multifamily, for example. Mm -hmm. And and obviously housing affordability is at an all-time low, but at the same time, We're not seeing any changes because there's no inventory because people are sitting in their houses with 3% interest rates. They just decentivized everybody to want to ever sell their house. And so they're going to be in houses longer. There's going to be less inventory on the market. And there's also going to be inflation. But housing, because of lack of demand and supply, may go even for a period of time. It may slightly dip, depends on what happens with the overall market and affordability rates. If rates continue to rise a little bit, I think we might have a little bit of a, a dip there. Um, but unless there's a major liquidity crisis like we had in 2008, or there's some other black swan event that happens to add a ton of inventory onto the market, then I don't see it necessarily crashing. They may go down slowly for a period of time, but. I I also think inflation is going to keep it right in line and maybe it's going even with a slow, steady inflation, even if inflation rate is higher over here. And so you're actually having to decline in purchasing power, but your debt is getting decimated on that infl- inflation. You want to hold real estate with long-term debt as long as your cash flow is at a good margin. And so what's interesting, if you see that occurring at some point, wages rise to a point where now housing is affordable again, right? Or at least that's the theory. Who knows what will yeah, really happen? Right. Not, you don't know if you're going to have another Lehman brother moment and liquidity crisis type situation, of course. But this is. But I see a lot of opportunity coming up and repositioning yourself to have liquid cash, be it a low debt, high cash flow position, be able to invest in alternative asset classes. Like I really love debt right now because my, my funds and things like that, I'm investing at like an average of Sixty-five percent loan-to-value in first-position debt secured by real estate with different operators around the country, and I invest that way too, with diff- in different syndications with different operators too, in assets like mobile homes that are typically recession-resistant too, because they're the lowest form of lowest-cost housing there is. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe tiny homes are getting a little cheaper now, but I don't know. Some of these houses, some of these mobile homes that you buy, you can get them for fifty grand now, all-in cost, and that it's tough to beat that if you're renting the those things, we're getting yeah, yeah, the yeah. yeah, no, that's interesting.
0: Do you feel that mobile home parks right now are, just because of everything that's going on in the economy, do you feel like they are probably even more desirable? And I'll, I'll say just probably, in, in my opinion, in the last maybe five years or so, they really started to get to be very popular. But because of everything you just mentioned, do you feel like they are at their peak? Popularity right now, or more more popular than what they've been before in the past.
1: So I think they've already had their popular run, and they the cap rates got compressed on those just like multifamilies to where they were inverted cap rates. It did doesn't even make sense really to buy some of these performing no value add just stabilized assets, right? So the buyers are buying those just want a stabilized cash flow. They're not worried about the return so much maybe they're making a 5% or 6% return on their money max on something like that on a stabilized good quality asset. I don't I don't buy those and I look at massive value add type projects, right? Like the one we just completed, it's 172 units and it needed 55 brand new units to come into the park that we're bringing in. And then another 26 park owned home units. And then on top of that utility recapture, which literally put us at a 13% plus cap rate on our cost. And looking at something like that, where you're adding so much value that no matter what happens with the market, even if it dropped by 20%, which I don't see happening from where it's at right now. We saw a major shift in valuation, which multifamily and these large assets may have dropped by 20% in value because of the interest rate environment and the way it's at right now compared to where it was. But going forward, if it drops another 20%, I mean, rates could go up another 5% or something. And then I can see that occurring again. But at the same time, even if that occurs, we're still at a great equity position on the asset. We can liquidate. We got a good cash flow stream. We're going to be able to refinance and with the right debt, even if debt is increased. So I look at that, what I'm investing now in the mobile home park space, how much value can we add to this and how much income can we add over the next year to literally stop risk from all these risks out there, right? As much as we possibly can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. When you're going through and looking at one of these assets, what are some of the main things that you look at first to be able to say, yeah, there is something there. Is it simply the cost basis that you're getting in these assets for? Is that kind of the first thing that says, oh, that's a, that's a really good price. But at the same time, if that's, if that's a really good price, but it needs two or three times what you're buying a, a door to be able to bring it back up to where it needs to be, then obviously there's nothing there. So I'm just curious, what are those initial levers that you say, yes, this lines up, let's dig deeper into this?
1: So one uh, efficiency. So there's a, n- a number of levers, right? Of course, but the first thing is, hey, is the project the the right fit for me and my team? Am I going to be able to perform on this with that asset? Is it the right asset for me from a from a location standpoint, a size standpoint, and and I'd say generally the metrics of the deal. Does does it look like it has a value add component to it where we can add more parks? What's the potential upside potential of that park right away? What are the market rents? I really don't care so much about current rents other than making sure it's a stable and I can afford some debt on the deal. But mm-hmm. looking at this from a, from a perspective of what's this going to look like in five years Are the rents way under rented checking the major value add components. And what does that look like? If I'm able to get to my goal versus if I have to, what, if I have to put X amount into it, I subtract out what I'm into it for, I subtract out other soft costs and startup costs and renovation, all that stuff. And then where am I at? Where do I have to be to hit a 10% plus cap rate on this to make that work? Where does my price need to be? So you back into the price every single time. And if that seems reasonable, if you're at a quarter of what they're asking, then obviously what are you gonna do? you Are just gonna walk away or maybe make the offer anyways, but who cares? But at the end of the day, that's how you're analyzing this first and saying, Market, location, deal size, team, and then numbers. What does that upside potential look like compared to where it's at right now? And how much value can I add versus what they're asking versus how much renovation or costs I have to put into it? It's just like a fix and flip, but you're looking at this also from a cash flow standpoint and saying, what, and I've done this for years in my single-family homes, where I'm looking at this, saying, "What's my cap rate at my cost?" That tells me immediately, based on the financing out there, I'll make a, a general return on investment in cash flow. So now you got to incorporate like an eight to eight and a half percent interest rate into that. So you really got to hit a ten cap to make that work. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah that's I, I haven't heard that that philosophy before, and I like that a lot because my next question was going to be, "Where is that cap rate?" breaking point or that that point where you say okay this doesn't make any sense anymore right traditionally in the last couple of years we've seen all this compression in cap rates multifamily depending uh-huh. what city you're looking in it's 4 or 5% some of those things and there's still some of those types of opportunities out there where it's still in that range are you would you look at any type of a a situation where the cap rate is still lower than the, where the interest rates are today is there are there opportunities if that that there's makes a major sense value add.
1: if there's a major yeah. value add component to it then yes um, if not then no and and I think it's important to, that's a clear distinction like you can't base it off of current Cash flow, you have to base it off of what your future cash flow is going to be and what the value is going to be based on the cap rate on your value added asset. And then you're basically saying, okay, in five years, current cap rates are at six, but what if the market crashes? Let me go put it at eight on the exit. So that way, does the, my deal still work? Am I still making a yeah. good profit? Am I making a good cash flow along the way as well? Does this deal work from that perspective? You have to break it down from that cash flow and exit strategy perspective and be reasonable. Is someone gonna buy this at this price? What's that cap rate gonna be? And if it goes from six to eight, then fine, right?
0: All right, so i love talking to industry veterans no matter what industry that might be. Of course, I'm in real estate, so I certainly like learning from people like Matt. So, if you want to learn more about Matt or any of the things that he is doing, go ahead and check him out at matthewowens.com and that is M A T. So, he is only he's one of the one T's out there. So, Matthew Owens with 1T.com. Go ahead and check him out. And again, if you are an accredited business owner who is interested in growing your net worth by investing in real estate, go ahead and check us out at investinsquarefeet.com. Again, investinsquarefeet.com. We are starting to see a lot of deals popping up in the market, and these are deals that have not really been seen in at least the last 10 years. So the market cycle is the right time to be able to get involved. So accredited business owners, check us out, investinsquarefeet.com.
1: Bye.